Today is not Pentecost. It is the sixth Sunday of the Easter season, and Pentecost is not for another two Sundays. But nonetheless, we find ourselves at Pentecost in our journey through the book of Acts, so here we are. We've spent enough time in the first chapter, and we have to move on. The chapter opens with all of the apostles together in one place again. If you were here last week, we found the apostles along with Jesus' mother, his half-brothers, and a group of other faithful women gathered together in an upper room trying to make sense of all that they had experienced over the course of the last 40 days. The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus was a lot to process alone. So they gathered together to try to make sense of what in the world had happened and tease out the implications of these events for their lives. And as chapter 2 opens, they are gathered again. We don't know how much time has passed between Peter's sermon on the betrayal of Judas and the day of Pentecost, but it's safe to say that they had not spent the entire time locked away in that upper room. They had probably left that house and walked about Jerusalem, but they continued to return to that room in order to comfort one another with prayer and words of encouragement. It was a rhythm we ourselves have adopted as we gather each week, not in an upper room, but here in this building, this sanctuary, to pray together to comfort and encourage each other and to work out the implications of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension for our lives. It's a healthy practice for God's people to gather regularly, and it's an ancient rhythm which we imitate in our weekly gathering. But the story of Pentecost reminds us not to forget the world outside of these walls. And God's intention for us to serve as witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus all the way to the ends of the earth the Spirit came, out, came down out of heaven that day and fell upon all those who were gathered in that upper room. And the gospel went out in a language that was not native to those speaking, but was intelligible to the foreigners in that city. The Parthians and Medes, the Elamites and Mesopotamians, the Asians and Libyans, the Egyptians and Romans... It was only 9 a.m. in the morning, 9 a.m. in the morning, too early for this to be the product of one too many margaritas, as some thought. And all those who experienced this phenomenon asked themselves a really good question. What's this mean? It was a question they had been asking themselves for over 40 days now, and it's the question that we ourselves are going to ask this morning. What does this mean? What is the meaning of these Galileans, these Aramaic-speaking Jews, being bestowed sudden fluency in a language they had not previously known? It's a sort of question with numerous answers. Luke has written his account of Pentecost as if he were standing in a canyon trying to capture the echoes of multiple voices into a single story. The result is a story that is layered with distinct voices from the past, but which all come together to create a powerful picture of what God is doing in the early days of the church. And we cannot process the whole picture at once, and so this morning we must be satisfied with investigating but one part of the story Luke tells. And the distinct echo we are going to tease out of Luke's account of Pentecost is the decision to play on the words wind, breath, and spirit. These three words, while distinct words, belong in the same thought world and are often translated interchangeably. For instance, when you read, the formless and, read about the formless and void world of Genesis 1 in the NRV, the, the text that's in your, in your pew Bibles, 
The text says that there was a wind from God that swept over the chaotic primordial waters. But if you read Genesis 1 in almost any other translation, you'll read that the Spirit of God hovered over those same waters. One has wind and the other has spirit. Who is right? Well, they technically both are right because there is a network of words in both Hebrew and Greek that can rightly be translated as either wind, spirit, or breath. There's some flexibility in the meaning of these words, which explains the variation in translation and also explains Luke's decision to adopt that word group because it creates the texture for potential and even unforeseen meaning and interpretation. Luke describes the events of that unusual day beginning with a sound coming from heaven, a sound like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the room so that they had trouble even hearing each other at first. A wind swept through that room and the Spirit filled their souls and their mouths to declare what Luke describes as the mighty works of God but which were none other than the defeat of death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of life in his ascension. They opened their mouths and floating on the breath that came out was the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection and the ascension in every language. The resurrection and the ascension for everyone to hear. By adopting the language of wind, breath, and spirit, Luke took a deep dive into a thought world that evokes memories of other significant stories in the Bible that swim in those same waters, stories that also use the flexibility of wind, breath, and spirit to their advantage, stories that infuse meaning into the events of Pentecost. And we're going to join Luke in this deep dive into the world of wind, breath, and spirit in order to return to our text and once again ask with those present that day, what does this mean? The first story we're going to dive into that shares in the thought world of wind, breath, and spirit and that echoes throughout Luke's story is the story we already mentioned just a minute ago, the story of creation in Genesis 1. That story begins with nothing, that is nothing but God. God was there in the beginning, but there was nothing else. It was darkness and chaos, and out of the nothing, God created everything and ordered all things, creating space one day and then filling it with beautiful and lively creatures the next. But while there was yet still nothing, there was a somebody, a spirit, who, who hovered like a bird over the nothing, flapping his wings to create a wind, a wind from God. And as the Spirit hovered over the waters, God began to speak, and his powerful word brought the world into being under the circling, watchful eye of the Spirit. And as God created the Spirit with great joy, witnessed the masterpiece coming into form. But on the sixth day, there was a break in the action. Well, not a break exactly, but a pause, we might say. The story slips into slow motion as God creates the piece de resistance, the flourish of creation, the cherry on top, if you will. On the sixth day, God creates humanity, and while everything else was brought into existence through his word, God gets his hands dirty to create humanity. There is an intimacy reserved for this creature alone. Into the mud, God slides his fingers, and he begins to pat it and shape it according to the design he has in mind until he gets everything just right. 
The proportions and the intricate details of the body are complete, and yet his creation is still just a lifeless lump of clay, dust that has been gathered into a statue. And to give this inanimate object life, God does the most extraordinary thing. He puts his lips up to the cool clay lips of this creature to be, and he breathes into them. He blows air, wind, and breath into the clay lungs, and suddenly this creature comes alive with a spirit within to animate it. Every breath, the breath of God. Spirit, wind, and breath are richly interwoven into the stories of creation, both of creation at large and the more intimate creation of humanity. These words are found playing off one another as God brings something out of nothing. And the circumstances of their occurrence are the same as they are in the story from the prophet Ezekiel, which Kendra read for you earlier. God took Ezekiel in the spirit of the Lord, mind you, on an excursion to a valley full of bones. They were very dry, Ezekiel was sure to note. There was no life in these bones. They were as lifeless as the darkness in Genesis 1 or the mud in Genesis 2, and yet God had plans for these bones. Preach to the bones, he tells Elijah. Tell them that I will cause breath to enter them, and they shall live. I will lay sinew upon them and will cause flesh to come upon them and cover them with skin and put breath in them. And they shall live, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Preach to these bones. And so Elijah preaches to a graveyard, a morbid thing to do, and yet the bones begin to rattle. And just as God had said he would, he began to piece them together, connecting bone to bone with tendon and tissue, until there were bodies before Ezekiel, but breathless bodies they were, until God gave Ezekiel a new command, ask for breath to enter these lifeless bodies. And the breath came into these bones from the four corners of the earth, Ezekiel says, like the wind that blows around the earth, and these bodies came to life. They came to life as a symbol of hope, a reminder that God is greater than death. And so he promises Ezekiel, you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Here he promises his spirit, where before the breath entered into the reconstituted bodies. Spirit, breath, and wind again come together in a story of creation, this time recreation, from nothing into something new, from bones into beings into life itself. Wind, spirit, breath. These three are essential to God's creative acts, and Luke adopts this rich world of words in order to answer the question posed on that Pentecost day, what does this mean? The rush of wind and the spirit's presence mean that God is creating again something out of nothing, out of a dead body, the body of Jesus of Nazareth. God is creating a forgiven, renewed people. Apart from Jesus, we are dead. 
like the dry bones of the valley and the mud and the darkness. We are devoid of all life apart from him because we have chosen sin and its offspring, death, instead of the contentment of living as creatures under the care of a benevolent God. We have desired a position that is not ours to fill, but even in our rejection of him, God has loved us. Even as we led a coup against God, our King, still he welcomed us into his kingdom and has given us privileged positions in his court. He has shown us this kindness because Jesus, the innocent Son of God, willingly died for us, buried in a grave not belonging to him, returning to the ground from which he was taken. He died for us, but he was also raised for us. He took on our story in order to rewrite the ending. In him, resurrection awaits us. Out of his dead body has sprung life. Life not just for individuals, but for an entire community, the church. This is so much of the story Luke tells in Acts, that Jesus is creating a new community. You might even say a new humanity even, at least a renewed one. And the makeup of that community is reflected in its spectacular beginning. Wind, breath, and spirit, enabling a group of Aramaic-speaking Jews to speak with remarkable fluency a language they have neither studied nor heard. The meaning of this miracle is that the new community Jesus is creating is made up of people from all over the world. No cultural or linguistic conformity is required to enter the kingdom of God. You can be Haitian and speak Creole, or Chinese and speak Mandarin, or Honduran and speak Spanish, but as long as you confess Jesus as your Savior and the Lord over your life in whatever language you speak, then you are just as equal a member of the kingdom of God as any Italian-speaking Roman or English-speaking American. The love of God knows no borders or boundaries. For all of, God's speak, all of God's people, although speaking different languages and eating different foods and dressing differently and preferring different, different musical styles, despite all these significant differences, we have something far more fundamental in common. The same spirit lives within us and has united us to each other, making us one. At the Tower of Babel, humanity had one common language, and they could do anything they set their minds to. It was a dangerous time for humanity because the mind of humanity has become corrupt so that not all advances are necessarily progress. So God scattered their languages and frustrated their self-destructive purposes. And ever since then, we've had a language barrier that has created distinct cultures with distinct, often conflicting agendas. But at Pentecost, God gave the Galileans the ability to miraculously speak a foreign language in order to build something new for himself, a new community that, all, although still divided by speech, is now united in spirit. Our speech is different, and yet our aim has been made the same. When people from every nation in the world believe in Jesus, their personal and national aspirations and agendas take a backseat to the aim of making Jesus known by declaring the mighty works of God. It brings God great joy to take something dead and make it alive again. The wind, breath, and spirit of Acts 2 show us that he has been at his work for over 2,000 years now. 
He did it first in Jesus, and he has repeated this mighty work in each and every person who, filled with, the, filled with faith, confesses, I too believe. They do not have to look like you or sound like you for God to love them. God is drawing men and women, sometimes the most unlikely men and women, if we look to the Bible for precedence. He's drawing men and women to himself, and you never know where he has a person when you first meet them. Pentecost challenges us to look beyond the exterior and to make Jesus known in all places and to all people. He is creating, and your mouth, your breath, is an instrument of service in his kingdom. May the love of Jesus always float on every breath you take. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, hymn number 568.